Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit, three in one. Lord, we are here to worship you this morning. And what a beautiful truth it is that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that any and all who call upon him are saved and there is not one sin that the blood cannot cover. So thank you, Jesus. We worship you this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. I am probably a new face this morning to some, and it's not because of the beard. But my name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at uh, Mercy Hill, and I have been asked to preach this morning. And it is uh, a great privilege to be able to do this, uh, to be able to share the Word of God this morning. Uh, It's not my opinions. It's not um, my thoughts, but it's the Word of God that I get to preach this morning. Uh, if you've been following the Bible reading plan, uh, we, Eric last week preached on the beginning of chapter 18, so I will be preaching on the end of 18 and most of 19. And first time preaching, I get the privilege of Sodom and Gomorrah <laughs> on Valentine's Day weekend. So let's show some love here. I'm going to go ahead and read... Uh, chapter 18, verses 16 through 21, to get us started. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, would you interpret your word to us? Keep us from unbelief. Keep us from error. Lead us in your truth. Lord, you are with us. Amen. Now, I'm sure if you've grown up in church for any amount of time, this story is not an unfamiliar story. In fact, much like David and Goliath and Jonah and the big fish, not whale, big fish, I think the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has permeated the culture to a degree, so it's most likely that Christian or non-Christian, you could probably retell part of this passage or most of it, at least the big parts of it. 
And I think it's a good thing that it, there's such familiarity with this text, and it also could be a dangerous thing. And it's good, obviously, because we want to encourage familiarity with the text. Obviously, we want people, the world, to know God's Word. But there's a danger that may come with it, is that when we become so familiar with the text, we think, well, I know this. I know all it is. I don't need to know any more about this. So we can maybe tune out and think we have it all figured out. And my hope this morning is that we can look at this text with fresh eyes. And maybe you do have a firm grasp on, on this text. I'm not going to tell you anything new, and that's okay. But my hope would be that you'd be freshly encouraged. Because I believe that this text should be incredibly troubling to our hearts. And yet also incredibly comforting when we rightly examine what God is saying here. So if you remember last week when Eric preached on uh, chapter 17 and beginning of 18 with the sign of circumcision and then the three men or then God gives new names to Abram, Abraham and Sarai to Sarah and these three, three men show up and Abraham you know, shows courtesy, great respect, brings them in, they have fellowship and God says, you're going to have a son. And that's where Sarah laughs. And so we pick it up right after this. And so the three men are leaving. And Abraham goes with them to see them off. So I believe the, what I just read, verses 16 through 21, is what sets this story, what sets these dramatic events that are about to unfold up. And so here in verse 18 we see that the author is revealing the mind of God. For God, God recalls the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. If you remember, that's where we started the Bible reading plan in Genesis. In verse 18, it says, God says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And in verse 19 we see that promise played out. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And just a couple notes before we get into chapter 19 is we shouldn't skip over God's promise here. It seems like he's almost deliberating with himself um, in the text, uh, am I going to share with Abraham what I'm about to do? Obviously, uh, he never changes his mind, and he, has, uh, he doesn't need to change, so this isn't like he's debating amongst himself. This is just for the reader to understand why God is going to share with Abraham what's going to happen. So it starts with, in the promise, for I have chosen or another way to translate that is, I have known him. And that Hebrew word chosen is, means chosen in love. Which is awesome in itself if you just think about it. He just wasn't chosen just because God out of his emotionless, cruel heart. No, chosen in love. 
And so in the narrative of Abraham, uh, starting in chapter 12, we clearly see the election of Abraham. If you read back in chapter 12, all, all through now, we see the story played out. But this is the first time that it's actually expressed as, I have chosen him. And this promise is beautiful because it starts with God. I remember reading through um, the Old Testament before and really having a hard time to grasp grace in the Old Testament. All these laws, uh, Mount Sinai and then Abraham and the Ten, or Moses and the Ten Commandments. And then when you get to Leviticus and on, it's like, what is going on here? All these laws with the temple, with the sacrifices, with the priests, what you can and cannot do. Where is grace in all of this? This seems to be just a bunch of uh, do this, do this, do this, or I won't bless you. But we seem, at least I did anyways, to, to skip over the part or miss the part where it starts with God. I have chosen you. Or when you read on um, with the Exodus, I have redeemed you. I have called you my people. Thus do this in response to my love. So this promise here to Abraham or that, that God recalls isn't just obedience. It's obedience in response to grace. So it's grace first, then obedience. And this applies to all of us. It is grace first, when we respond to God with obedience. And so that the Lord, and, and why is this? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was promised to him. So we see that God elects so that his people will be holy and blameless in his sight. Another way to say it is God is sovereign in the beginning, God is sovereign in the middle, God is sovereign in the end. And that is a great hope. So God reveals to Abraham at the end what he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment. And why does he do this? Verses 20 through 22 through 25. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed Sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abraham here asks a question that this entire story, that this entire sermon will hinge upon. And a question I want you to ask yourselves as we go through this is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So the first thing I want us to look at is the justice of God. Not... Uh, It'd be justice of God as in the standard. Will God do what is just? If there's an evil, will God confront it? Will he punish it? Will he, will he do something about it? 
So what is the standard of God's justice? So Abraham feared that God would sweep away the righteous with the wicked. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, God. I'm sure he was thinking about Lot and his family. Lord, with this judgment coming, do not sweep away Lot, the righteous, with the wicked. Far be it from you. And when I first read this, I initially thought that Abraham was thinking that God could do something that was unjust. And the more I read it, Abraham is no fool. He knows the character of God. So he's pleading to God based upon the character of God. So he's pleading for mercy based upon he, because he knows God is righteous. And he cannot do anything unjust. So he's interceding for the righteous. Verses 26 through 28. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. So Abraham pleads for the sake of fifty righteous. If they be, may be found, the Lord says, I will spare the entire town, the entire city, for the sake of fifty righteous. Now it also must be noted that when Abraham spoke to the Lord, he did it with great humility. It wasn't flippant. It wasn't prideful. He knew his place. And if I can, I think we can so easily forget when we pray our place where we approach God flippantly. Now we can approach Him boldly, but it's remembering our place. I don't remember if I read this somewhere or if I saw this, but uh, it was basically some guy talking to a youth group or trying to be hip saying, you know, you can pray to God however you want. You know, Daddy God. I thought, whoa. That is not remembering our place. So, when God said, I will spare the 50, or I will spare the sake of the whole city for the sake of the 50 righteous, the implication is this, and that Abraham continues to, to um, it seems like, negotiate with God. Okay, Lord, um, 45, okay, how about 30? I'll spare for 30. Okay, 20, I'll spare for 20. Lord, I've asked you this already. Please don't be angry with me. Ten. I'll do it for ten. So the implication is God would not sweep away one righteous with the wicked. God cannot do anything, anything unjust. Abraham seemed to be the righteous one because he's interceding 
for the righteous. But the reality is he was pleading with the one who is the very definition and standard of righteousness. This is part of God's character and he could be absolutely nothing less. So once again, the question is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The second thing I want us to take a look at within the text is the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may arise early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. So a couple things that's interesting to note is we meet Lot again. And now last time we saw Lot, there were two events that took place. The first event was Lot and Abraham they were prospering. They were going big. Their shepherds were quarreling. So they split ways. Abraham said, pick where you would like to go. So Lot chooses to go down towards the valley of Sodom. And Abraham goes the other direction. And then Abraham has to rescue Lot. But it didn't say that Lot went to go live in the city of Sodom. When we see him here, He is living in Sodom. It says he is sitting in the gate. This might seem a little weird to us. What does sitting in the gate mean? You know, you probably have that just image of your head. There's a gate. There's a man sitting there like a homeless guy. It's not what that meant. Sitting in the gate meant doing important business. So basically the elders of the city would sit there in the, in the area of the gate and this is where they would do legal business. This is where uh, the respected elders of the community would rule the city, essentially. So we see that Lot is among the respected elders of the city. So Lot is an involved member of Sodom. He isn't just living there like some innocent victim. Lot is taking part of the daily activities of Sodom. And this would be to Sodom's benefit because Lot, as Scripture later says, is a righteous man. Which we'll wrestle with the tension in that text as we get to some, some uh, heavier parts here. So when Lot sees the men, he reacts similarly to how Abraham reacted when he saw the three angels. Abraham was like, oh, come. He bows down, come. I'll make some food for you. Come in. Come into my house. And Lot does the same thing. But it doesn't mention anyone else doing this. Just Lot. So the men came and they said, we'll just spend the night in the town square. And Lot says, no, no, you don't want to do that. And I wonder if Lot knew the wickedness of the city and what would happen if these men stayed in the town square. And as we see a little bit later, I think his concern was obviously well-founded. 
As we go on. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Here we don't just hear about the wickedness of Sodom. We're a couple chapters before this, as almost an aside, it says, and the city of Sodom was very wicked, or the people of Sodom were very wicked and displeasing to the Lord. So we hear about the wickedness. Here we actually see it play out, unfolding. And this isn't just, I guess you can say on, on human terms, on a human level, like, oh, they lied, oh, they just stole the guy's possessions, you know, they robbed him, or maybe they deceived him. No. These men come in, Lot brings them in to his house, and all the men of the city, young and old, come and say, bring them out so we may know them. And this is the ESV and other translations, just put it plainly. Bring them out so we may have sex with them. This isn't, uh, <laughs> this is great wickedness, let's put it that way. Tremendous wickedness. And the corruption is so perverse that it's not just the young, but it's the old. This isn't just youthful immaturity sinfulness. This is the old. The old men as well. And in Scripture, the elderly, the gray-haired, is a picture of wisdom and maturity. That's what God intends. You grow older, naturally you're supposed to grow more wise. Obviously that, that isn't the case, and especially not the case here. And this shows that it's not just half the city, or maybe you know, there's some just bad apples in this city, but generally we're okay. You know, Sodom was okay. You know, a couple bad guys. Every man, young and old, wicked, bring out these men so we may know them. And this is a picture here of men completely enslaved by their lust. Completely enslaved. It's their master. Uncontrolled sexual desire. Homosexuality, otherwise known as sodomy. And think that that term sodomy comes from this. And this is how many thousands of years ago and this term is still around. Men driven to fulfill whatever desire they want that just pops up in their flesh. I feel like this. Okay, let's just go do it. And this is not something that just happened overnight. This, this wasn't like, okay, there's a town over here that's just wicked. And it just happened to be wicked. There was a great progression this is the fruit of father and son, generation after generation, hating God in complete rebellion. 
And honestly, do you want to see a picture of a heart that hates God? This is it. This is a picture of a heart that is in rebellion to God. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed, then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. This is the wickedness of man on total, full display. Lot steps out of his house and tries to plead with the men not to act so wickedly. Brothers, what are you doing? Don't act so wickedly. You know me. But the reality is there is absolutely no reasoning with those whom God has given over to a debased mind. You can just listen as I read a little bit from Romans 1 as God gives another picture of this reality. Romans 1, 24 through 28. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For, these reason, for this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. graphic. This was a degenerate culture. Now, the interns and Eric will throw around the word degenerate sometimes uh, when we see something that is like, like a false teaching or it will quip like, oh, that's, that's degenerate. <laughs> but as as Eric was talking on Friday when we met, explaining how we think when we say something is degenerate, or even the word itself, degenerate, isn't just stagnant. It's not to say, well, you're degenerate, and then that's just who you are, as in you don't change. Degeneracy implies it's progressively getting worse. When you degenerate, you're getting worse. It's getting worse. So when I say this is a degenerate culture, 
This isn't a culture that's just wicked. It's degenerate, meaning it's getting more and more wicked. Hates God more and more because He gave them up to their lusts. But what did Lot do in response? He goes out, pleads with them, brothers, please don't do this. Don't act so wickedly. And his response is, here are my two daughters. Take them. They have not known a man. Do with them as you please. It's like we entered the realm of madness. And as some commentaries I read, it said Lot may have been under an ancient Near East code or law that obligated that a host must protect any guest under the roof. And that may be true. But however, their response, I'm going to protect these guests by offering my two daughters so that they can do whatever they want to them. That's madness. I also would like to say that Lot certainly is not getting any father of the year award. But it's, it's utter wickedness. And here we can see how Sodom has rubbed off on Lot, where his response to combat wickedness was wickedness. And the men aren't like, okay, We'll take your two daughters and do as you please. They say, no, we want these men. And who are you? In fact, we're going to do to you worse than what we're going to do to them. And so now the irony is the men that Lot was trying to protect now have to protect him. And also these men were angels. I don't think they need the protecting in the first place. However, what happens is they now pull Lot back inside the house and struck with blindness all those who are at the entrance. And you would think that this stops the assault. I mean, trust me, if I'm doing something, I'm, I'm struck blind, I'm going to stop. What's happened? These men are so controlled by their lust that, that they're stricken, when they're stricken blind, they continue on. Groping after the door until they're weary. It wasn't Okay, boys, we're blind. Let's go home. It's, no, we're going to get what, what we want and you can't stop me. Groping for the door until they're weary. Once again, absolute madness. And the thing is, do we really think that Sodom is this just far off story? Truly, how is our nation any different? How is it shaping up to be any different? Just to be real frank and to be honest, as we as a nation celebrate the same sins that God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah for, and a lot of you, this is not a surprise to hear this. You see it every day, whether it's at work 
on TV, on social media, with family or friends. You see this with your own eyes. We celebrate the same sin. Unchecked lust. You know the phrase, I'm only human. You know, you hear that with, with uh, some men looking at women. Adultery. I'm only human. Total sexual freedom. Ah, sleep whoever, with whoever you want. Whatever. Doesn't matter, married, unmarried, open relationships. And then on top of that, it's not just total sexual freedom, it's sexual freedom with no consequence. Meaning, okay, I got pregnant. So, that hinges upon my freedom. I'm going to terminate the baby inside my womb. Abortion. It's your choice, right? This is justified murder. We celebrate this. And then homosexuality. And then what lies have been pumping into the nation with this one? Not only are we told that we have to accept this, but we have to celebrate it. Ah, they're born this way, we're told. That's how God created me to be. This is absolutely a deception. And friends, even if that is true, that they are born this way, it matters not because what does Jesus say? You must be born again. In fact, the reality is, okay, you might be born this way. We're all born sinners. We must be born again. I'm just born this way. Okay, Jesus says, be born again. And it used to be the culture, you know, when you want to list the sins and then you get to homosexuality and then that's, that's about as bad as it gets. Now we've enter, entered into some realm in this nation where somehow we can be, boys can be girls and girls can be boys. And to say otherwise is hate speech? You know, looking at some of this stuff, maybe we well, well surpassed the sins of Sodom. And once again, as a nation, we did not get here overnight. This is generations of sin. Heterosexual sin, affair, unbiblical divorce, pornography, adultery, seeking to please the flesh because we've rejected the only one who can satisfy, and that is Jesus Christ. We love our rebellion, hate God, calling evil good, inventing new evils, and giving approval to men who do. We read Sodom. Ah, that's Sodom. It couldn't be us. I'm telling you, that's a lie. We're living in deception if we think this cannot be true today. So the wickedness of Sodom was on full display. And we read this. And of course, God didn't send the angels down to investigate to see if this was true. God already knew this. So the implication from this is God sees the wickedness. He's going to do something about it. And now we as the readers see the wickedness 
which is now going to explain or give justification for what's about to happen. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot has two sons-in-law. He warns them. The angels told them, go warn them. And after these events that just took place, men, young and old from the city, surrounding his house, trying to beat down his door to have sex with these visitors. And then they're struck with blindness and this great event unfolds. I'm sure Lot, after he hears the warning from the angels after this, go tell your family to get out. He's like, okay, I'll take my time. And he goes up to his sons-in-law, hey, Ricky, George, that's probably not their names. Destruction's coming, you probably should get out. That's obviously silly. As after what just took place, he must have been in a panic. Running up to the door, knocking on it, hey, Guys, you have to get out. I'm being dead serious. In fact, I'm sure the men, the sons-in-law, knew what happened. It's like Holmes County. When something happens, the rest of Holmes County will know pretty soon. It wasn't a secret. And who's to say maybe they weren't even taking part in it? But he warns them, get out. And they thought he was jesting. How blind, how corrupt their hearts must have been to hear the call that they were to die if they did not get out. And they thought it was a joke. My father-in-law is here this morning, and if he hears anything about my death coming, I'm all ears. But he heard, they heard the warning, get out. You're kidding, right? Come on. And think, is this not the same way that it was in Noah's day? The men of Noah's time must have reacted the same way where they're looking at the ark which is literally an image of their salvation. (laughs) You're kidding, right? What is this? What a joke it must have seemed to them. And is this not the same reaction Peter tells us we will have in our day? In 2 Peter 3, just a couple verses, 
And at the men's retreat last year, we went through this. This might be a refresher for some. But Peter tells us, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The scoffers will mock the coming judgment as if it were a joke. That those who proclaim Christ is coming back and this is a joke. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead and these men think it's a jest. And if I can also be honest here, how many of us have fallen into this trap that it is a jest? Not believing that the judgment is coming. But we've invested so much in our own lives, our own kingdoms, our own little empires, that Christ's return is just a simple afterthought. Oh, we profess Christ is going to return, but we simply deny it by our own lives. What does Jesus say? Jesus say, said in the Gospels, stay awake. The coming of the Son of Man will be like a thief in the night. And we live as if things will continue as they have. And this is the great lie that Satan preaches. And we've just licked it up. How easily can those who profess Christ look like the world? Even like Lot, who gave up his own daughters, became like Sodom. Peter says, Lot's righteous soul was tormented over Sodom's wicked deeds. Did he not play some part in that? Friends, brothers and sisters, the judgment is coming. The judgment will surely come. Second Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example 
by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The judgment is coming, and shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the last thing I want us to look at is the mercy of God. God's mercy. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away into the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape with your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. I want us to see this, to hear this. When the time came for Lot to flee, what did he do? Okay, let's go. He knew what was coming and he lingered. He hesitated. Maybe he had second thoughts. You know, it is implied within Scripture that Lot was a wealthy man. This is where he lived. Flee! Everything he knew and owned was going to be gone. Hesitated. Maybe he wasn't fully convinced. Okay, I mean, I know some crazy things have happened, but maybe, maybe it's not true. He was given warning of the judgment to come, surely to come, and he lingered. And what did the men do? The men seized Lot and his family by the hand and forcibly brought them out of the city. Why? Why? The Lord being merciful to him. Why? Because God's mercy. Another translation says God's compassion was upon him. Is this not a picture of what God's compassion does? What God's compassion is? Grabbing us by the hand, us who lingers, who loves our sin, who hates God, grabs us by the hand when His compassion is on us and pulls us out into our salvation. These stories within the Old Testament, real events that took place, they're not just here for us to enjoy. These are real pictures of what God does, His working, His salvation, our sinfulness, our need of a Savior. These aren't just here for just nice pretty details. God's compassion grabs us by the hand. And, and the thing is, the angels didn't just stand there when Lot lingered. and says, please, please come. I can't do anything unless you come. Please. I wouldn't want to do anything that upsets you or violates your will. I can't, I can't do that. 
Friends, no. God's will was for Lot to be saved. And as Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Isaiah 14.27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who can annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? And as Matthew Henry said, Thou salvation of the most righteous men is of God's mercy, not by their own merit. We are saved by grace. If God had not been merciful to us, our lingering would have been our ruin. It's plain and it's simple and it is a glorious, glorious truth that we can put all of our hope in, is what the Lord has purposed to do. He will do it. For He cannot fail. This is such a great hope. But what are we but lingerers? We linger. But as 2 Peter 7 and verse 9 Verse 7 and verse 9 says, speaking of Lot, if he rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. How many times do we hear of the promises of God? Do we sing about them on Sunday morning? Do we read in Scripture? if you grew up with catechisms or confessions of faith, that we memorize them and we know that all things are working for our good, that Jesus' blood covers all of our sin, that not one hair from our head can fall apart from the will of our Heavenly Father, that He's paid our debt. We sing these truths, we memorize these truths, we proclaim these truths, and yet how often do we still linger This is the beautiful picture of the salvation of God because when He has purposed to save you, it will be done. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I cannot do anything till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor, which also means little. The men commanded Lot to escape. 
his family to escape for their lives and not to look back. He says, escape to the hills lest you be swept away. But Lot also, acknowledging the great favor and kindness he has been shown by God for saving his life, pleads, please, I can't make it to the hill. Just this little city here. Please. Out of God's mercy and kindness, once again, it was granted. Once again, isn't that a form of lingering? God says, flee, flee. Judgment is coming. Oh, but God, uh, but this, I flee. But we see here also that God is not far off. He's not far off. And He is more merciful than we can comprehend. So what happened? When Lot came to Zor, the Lord rained down sulfur and fire. Verses 23 through 26. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. When Jesus said that we should be salt, I don't think that's what it meant. She looked back. What did the angels command? What did the men command? Don't look back. What did she do? Look back. I'm not sure if Lot's wife was from Sodom, but obviously that's where her home was and that's where she wanted to be before she looked back, turned into a pillar of salt. And interestingly, uh, as I was reading one thing, they said, <laughs> I'm not sure if this is true, but according to this thing I was reading, you can see where they claim this is where the pillar of Lot's wife, pillar of salt is. You can go see it. Not sure if that's true. However, we don't need to see it to know that it's true because it's here. And right after the destruction, what do we see in verse 29? So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham. So I'm sure after Abraham interceded for the city, for the righteous not to be swept away, and he wakes up and he goes, okay, I would like to see what took place. What was the verdict? Was justice done? And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up 
like the smoke of a furnace. What Abraham saw, what God has commanded Abraham to do, Abraham saw justice. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and spared Lot. Lot was spared because of God's promise. Not because he deserved saving or because somehow earned mercy, which you can't earn mercy, but somehow we think we can. But it's because of God. In fact, did not Lot deserve the same destruction as Sodom? What was so special about Lot? We saw he acted wickedly, but Scripture calls him righteous. Why? God has clearly said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why? Why them? God says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy and compassion on who I want. But what's interesting to note is that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, speaking to the town of Capernaum or about the town of Capernaum, who rejected him, he said, Matthew eleven twenty three. For if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, done in you, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Now the implication of that statement is that Jesus clearly said that if Sodom was shown the same mighty works that he did in Capernaum, they would have repented. Whoa, okay. God, I see you moving. We're sinners. We need you. Lord, please save us. Jesus said, if these same works that I'm doing now in your midst have been done in Sodom, they would have repented. Now, this is showing the wickedness of, of this generation that Jesus is, uh, had come to. But this also shows that God chose to demonstrate his justice on Sodom to serve as an example of what would happen to the ungodly. God chose for that. And we think, well, what about Nineveh? Was it last year, a year before that, when we read through the book of Jonah? How was Nineveh any less wicked than Sodom? Yet God chose to show his mercy. In fact, didn't Jonah? Lord, why spare them? I don't want to do this. He was wanting judgment. I will show mercy on who I want and I will show compassion on who I want. God chooses to exercise His mercy freely and we should praise God for this mercy. As Paul says in Romans 9, 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The truth is the Lord will indeed not sweep away one righteous with the wicked. He cannot. But Jesus also said, speaking of Capernaum, 
In the next verse, in verse 24 in Matthew 11, I tell you that it will be more tolerable, tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why? Why is that true? Friends, it's because the full revelation of Jesus has been given. Something Sodom did not have. They had enough to know there was a God and enough to know to call on Him. So they were without excuse, but they did not have Jesus fully revealed like we do now. And the reality is when we reject Jesus, Sodom is a picture of our judgment. It's already a picture of the hearts of those who reject Christ. And friends, like Lot, our only hope is to flee. And we're not just fleeing to some unknown end. Just flee, flee. No. Yes, we do flee from sin, but we flee to Christ. Because the reality is that judgment and the wrath of God is coming. And we only have two options, only two. Endure the wrath of God in everlasting hell. Or be hidden in Christ who has already suffered the wrath of God for those who are His and has fully paid our debt. And as a part of our prayer in the Valley of Vision, which is a prayer book of Puritans, a little section, it says this. And may we all pray this prayer in our hearts. I cannot satisfy thy law. Only Christ's righteousness, ready made, already finished, is fit for that purpose. We have two options, and the wrath of God is coming. Worship team, you can make your way up. Friends, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to flee to Christ. Flee to Christ, for He is enough. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, so all the wicked will be swept away and no one can escape this reality. And you may hear me say this and mock or you may think you have more time but the reality is nothing would please Satan more than having these thoughts lingering. On the day of judgment only the righteous will stand. And the only one who is righteous is Jesus Christ. And the scripture clearly says 
that all those who believe in him will be saved because Christ lived the life that we should have lived and Christ died the death that we should have died. And not only that, Scripture clearly teaches that not only all our debts are paid, but that we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are given the righteousness of Christ, which means we have given Him our filthy rags and we get His clean robe. And the beautiful reality that we must wrap our minds around is that when we cry out to Christ and believe in Him, that God looks at us through Christ so we become righteous in His eyes. We are shown mercy and grace. And a couple quotes from men long before my time, long before any of you, to end with. As J.C. Ryle said, God is far more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. Is this not Lot? Is this not you and me? And as John Newton said, as he was nearing his death, he said, although my memory is nearly gone, I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Oh, this is such a beautiful truth that Christ is not only willing, but He is able to save His sheep. When the judgment comes, God will remember His promise, which is completely, totally, utterly fulfilled in Christ. And all those outside of Him will perish, every last one. But those in Him will endure, hidden, in Christ. Please, please do not hesitate like Lot. If you're here today and you're unsure of some things, cry out to Christ today. Today. Don't linger because Christ is more willing to save you than you are willing to save yourself. Cry out, cry out to Christ. Because shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That should either make us utterly fearful and trouble our hearts so we cannot sleep, or it should be the most comforting thing in the world that we hear because we know that we're in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are steadfast in love and patience and kindness 
and you are utterly willing to save those who call upon your name. Lord, you see us and you hear us, and there is not one unjust thing that escapes your eye. Father, so if anyone is here today who does not know you, who does not trust in you, who does not truly know the name of Jesus, that they would cry out to you, plead for mercy and salvation, flee to the hills, to the mountain of God. Lord, and those of us who do know you, that we would not think that fleeing and crying out to Christ is something that we do only once, but we do it daily. That you give us hearts to cry out to you, to repent, to turn from our sins, to live in obedience, but to love Christ. Lord, you are so good even when we don't understand things. Though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. We pray all these things in Christ's name, who is faithful to the end. Amen.